0: Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your guest host, Sue Tierney. This episode continues our month-long spinoff series called Big Decisions, the Future of U.S. Environmental and Energy Policy. Our regular hosts, Daniel Ramey and Kristen Hayes, are taking a well-earned month off So we'll broadcast this special series in our same Resources Radio time slot every Tuesday in October and return to Daniel and Kristen in November. For this Big Decisions series, we'll have conversations with leading decision makers on both sides of the aisle, top analysts, scholars, and reporters to discuss the big decisions that will likely affect U.S. environmental and energy policy in the years to come. Please stay with us. My guest today is Paula Glover, President and CEO of the American Association of Blacks in Energy, that's commonly known as ABE. Just recently, Paula was announced as the new president of the Alliance to Save Energy. She served on the National Petroleum Council and has experience in industry and solid knowledge and experience in the energy policy realm. Paula, I am so glad that you could join us today. Hello.
1: Hello. Thank you so much for
0: inviting me. Well, it's great that you could find some time to spend with us and our listeners. You know, we traditionally start our interviews with a question to each guest about how or why she found her way into a profession related to energy and the environment. So I wonder if you could share your story with us.
1: Sure, it'd be my pleasure. It's it's probably not particularly interesting. I actually fell into it um, when I got out of school, um, out of college, and you know, after having a summer off and traipsing the light, fantastic, as I would say, um, my mother looked at me and said, you need to get a job. And so I was temping, actually. My first temp job um, was for a gas company um, that was about a mile away from where I grew up. I had no idea what went on in that building. Um, And that's really where it started. I started working there. They hired me Full time, and I was working directly with customers who were coming in to pay their bill, um, negotiating sometimes, you know, turn ons and turn offs, a little bit of um, credit collections, and then had the opportunity to kind of move around into other areas of that company, into community outreach and economic development. And in all of that, I actually became familiar with the association that I now lead. Um, and that's what made me fall in love with the industry meeting people at ABE who created a tremendous network of support for me, um, who helped me really understand the importance of this business that I had been working in and why it mattered to people and why our work mattered. Um, And probably at that point is really when I made a decision that the industry, the energy industry was like the industry that I want to stay in for my career.
0: I love that. And I love that you started with a lot of practical interactions with the people who pay the electricity and gas bills yeah uh, that's really a great angle a lot of people enter from you know the the either law or something else but you're really uh you saw where the rubber hits the road so that's wonderful
1: Yeah, I often tell people, and and I believe this, that it was the most informative job that I've ever had, or I believe I ever will have, um, is when you sit across the table from a customer, um, particularly one who's having a really difficult time, and they have to almost share their entire life with you to get you to do, um, in some way, the right thing for them, Yeah, Um, you just think about everything else you do after that, you think about it differently.
0: That's really lucky in some sense that you have that lens. I was just looking at some data recently about the percentage of a household's income that's spent on either gas or electric or water service. And people below the poverty line, it's just extraordinary how much of a burden it is.
1: Yeah, energy burden is such a tremendous problem that we have. And um, I'll just a very short story because this is a customer that I remember um, very early, probably the first year and a half of my working. Um, a young woman who at that time was probably about my age, so about 25 or so, had um, three small children all under the age of five and she had taken this bus Um, to my office to pay a bill and to kind of make a payment arrangement. And it was really right after um, Bill Clinton had enacted welfare reform. Um, And that meant that her benefits had been significantly cut. She wasn't working um, and all she could really pay was about $5 a week. She really, after showing how much she was getting from the state, how much she was getting in food stamps, the whole nine, it was all she had was $5. Um, Even though she probably had a bill that was probably $300 a month. And so she would take the bus with these three kids, you know, 45 minutes each way, just to give me the $5, just to kind of demonstrate and prove that it wasn't that she didn't wanna pay, it was that she just, didn't have any more that she could give me. Um, and oftentimes when I talk about policy with policymakers, I always keep her in mind. She is who, like, I would describe her as my why. Um, because until you meet someone who is in that situation, um, you don't really fully appreciate how many families struggle that she was not unique. That so many families in this country, um, struggling in the same exact way to just, you know, make sure that they can have um, heat and hot water and refrigeration and lights and, and all the basic things that we all expect to have.
0: Wow. What an experience for you. And here we are in 2020 and you are now at the helm of ABE, American Association for Blacks in Energy. I've always thought of ABE as such an incredible forum for Black people in what's basically a white dominated industry around the country and Abe has been really great in supporting professional development, education, diversity, inclusion issues for blacks in the field in addition to advocating for other energy issues uh, just more broadly. So what are you hearing from your membership in this election year in terms of policy priorities or other things that they're looking for?
1: You know I think Um, For my members, we're always just thinking about, right, what is what is affordable mean? And, you know, we we do as an association, I think, a really good job of trying not to necessarily pick sides, but think about what is best for the communities that we are advocating for. Um, And we spend a lot of time educating ourselves on all the. Um, different viewpoints, so that we're not picking a side and that we're not just limited to um, what we know about the businesses that we each individually work in, but that we understand um our collective businesses, um, but also the impact that those businesses have on our communities um, environmentally, um as well as economically. And so I think in this year and moment where so much has been focused on, kind of the inequalities that we see that um, particularly as it relates to black and brown people in this country, we are, I think, even more singularly focused on making sure that the policy decisions that are made, um, have them in mind in a very real and deliberate way. Um, and, And that, you know, when we start to talk about equity um, we really need to understand what should baseline be and then how do you move people um, to kind of that ground baseline level before we start kind of helping move other communities beyond that and so it's it's a little bit tricky sometimes um, but it's really really important i think what covid has shown all of us in this country is that um, when you start talking about African Americans and Hispanics in this country, the disparities are tremendous and they are multi-layered. and they're in almost every, um, you know, not all all walks of life, but in every kind of measure, if you're talking about health or wealth or employment, Um, or unemployment, or access to education, or access to the internet, or like, there are just so many things um, that kind of feed off of one another in a way that it's just important for us as a membership. And my members are really focused on, you know, what is it that we can do in the space in which we work to really have meaningful change? So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is really Again, another focus on how do we make sure um, that there is economic empowerment in our communities and that um, our industry is doing all that it can to offer opportunities for our business owners, to offer opportunities for our young people and our students, um, to support our professionals and develop and increase the pipeline of individuals who can become leaders in our organizations and serve on our boards um, and really, imagining what it would look like if we had full representation um, of all of our communities in this business that we work in, um, and and how that could really, I think, propel us forward if we did that well.
0: You know, in, in some sense, for several years, many people in our industry have begun to say, you know, how can we address equity, diversity, and inclusion? But 2020 has really accelerated and intensified people's interest in ensuring that there's opportunity and economic empowerment for communities of color. You just talked about that, and I wonder if you can give us some ideas about what you're seeing your members do in order to actually make that meaningful change. Uh, Can you give us a couple of for instances? Yeah, sure. So for
1: instance, I think for many of my members, it really starts really with us having the ability um, to be fearless in a way that we've never had to be in terms of having really difficult conversations. And so example, we, um, Sue, as you probably know, have an annual convention every single year. Um, This year we had to do it completely virtual, Um, but we started out talking about race in the energy industry. Um, that's not a conversation that we even as an association of African American professionals has ever had talking about what does it mean to be black in this business and what are the challenges that we face and how do we navigate our industry. in, in a way that maybe others don't have to. And not only just to share those stories, but also to say, so how do we do better? And what are the pipelines that we can develop? And what are the support systems that um, we can create if they don't exist? And how do we better support one another? It's There's a collective, I think, recognition that, you know, these conversations are really, really difficult, um, but they are also now in 2020 unavoidable, um, that we can no longer right, kind of keep our professional lives and and how we show up at work separate from kind of the social things that are happening in our communities, um, to our families, to our friends, to our neighbors, Um, we are affected by all of it, as we all are. Um, But that for us, we we just need to be a little bit more courageous and be able to um, speak up and then quite frankly, help um, our colleagues, um, our, our Caucasian and other colleagues be able to have those same conversations um, because at the end of the day, we're all trying to, I believe, arrive at the same place.
0: I agree. Those conversations are absolutely challenging and so important. I was in a conversation in, a, in an organization that's been trying to have really authentic conversations about uh, race and, uh, and relationships in, in a workplace. <laughs> not to mention in society more broadly and some white person said you know this is very uncomfortable and a young black woman said well welcome to my world mm-hmm. every day i have to deal with being uncomfortable and being made to feel like i can't be myself and it, i i won't forget that ever uh, because it's so important for getting a sense of what it's like to be in the other person's shoes. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. Let me let me pivot for a minute, because I know that uh, this past summer, virtually, Abe sponsored a book reading by authors of a new book that's called The Energy Within Us. And I happen to own this book. I got it because a good friend of mine, Rose McKinney James, is one of the five co-authors. And this is a story, as you know very well, that's uh, about five really accomplished black female executives and what their story is like and so forth. Uh, I got to to work with two of those co-authors as part of the Obama-Biden transition team at the Department of Energy um, these 12 years ago. And that was Rose uh, Rose McKinney-James and Carolyn Green. And I, I just have been so impressed with the two of them for many years. I'm interested to know what you have learned from these and other inspiring female leaders in this field where you yourself are now a black female professional executive that so many women look up to.
1: You know, thank you for that question. Um, I am really, I consider myself incredibly blessed and and lucky that, um, I I knew I know all five of those authors very well, and I consider them friends and mentors. Um, in fact, um, one of the other authors, Hilda Penix-Ragland, um, was, I think, the first person that I ever met at an Abe event back in like 1992, 93. And so um, several of those authors, several of those women have literally watched me grow up um, over 27 years, which is a little scary. But I think... I think they're proud of me, but it's, you know, they've seen me, you know, at my best and absolutely my worst professionally and personally. Um, you know, I think what I've learned from them is really the importance of creating a support system for yourself, no matter what that looks like. Um, but that you want to surround yourself with people that you trust enough to tell you the truth, especially when you don't want to hear the truth. Um, because it's, it's, that's important um, that you're gonna have a, a kitchen cabinet, um, if you wanna describe it that way. But just, a, I call it my tribe, right? The tribe of people that I know when they tell me something that I really don't wanna hear, I still value that opinion and I value it um, incredibly highly and, and to the extent um, that I need to take their advice. And, and I do take their advice. And so I think for all of us Um, as women, as people, it's really important to find those people. Um, You know, my own career, it was always, my goal was never another job or promotion. Um, My goal has always been to make the person who gave me the opportunity proud of the work that I did. And if I made them proud, I was actually really pretty incredibly happy about that Um, because more times than not, I really wasn't quite sure if I could do it. Um, and it was just that they thought I could do it. That I said, well, if you know, if Hilda thinks I can do it, I guess I can do it. So I better, you know, get about the business of making sure that she can look back at that decision and say, wow, I'm glad that you know that was the right decision. I knew she could do it, and look at how she has stepped up. Um, and then the other thing I think is that there really there is no competition between us. One person, one woman's success is all of our success, and we should be cheering each other on um, through every single success um, and then supporting one another through every disappointment. There is no place to lay blame or no one to lay blame on, um, but that it's always, we're filled with teachable moments. Um, We always have to figure out how are we going to pivot and change and adopt because we know that things are not going to go the way that we want all the time. We just know that. Um, And then really the last thing I, it would be like making sure that we are constantly thinking about other people and being empathetic, um, you know, whatever your, whether it's religion or faith, and I don't even, I don't think that matters. Um, but these were five women who were always thinking about somebody else um, and and trying to support somebody else when they need it. Um, Just because, because that's the right thing to do. Um, And doing the right thing is more than enough of a good reason.
0: Well, thanks to Abe for putting out their stories and to you for sharing that experience. Everything you just said resonates with me so much personally, Uh, especially the, you know, people gave you opportunities and you weren't sure you're going to be able to do it, but uh, you wanted to make sure that you could make them proud. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Let me turn to your own podcast that you've had at ABE, and it's called Always Bet on Black. I just love that name. Thank you. And in case our listeners don't know about it, could you just describe a couple of your favorite moments, and then we'll get back to politics. Sure. Um, So we're going to leave the hard
1: stuff the fun stuff for last. Right. Um, You know, I think... This is the, the best part about the team that I have at Abe is that I can literally have a mild ranting of an idea and they coalesce and make it happen, which is what happened with the podcast. It was literally me being shut down and starting to listen to podcasts that my son had recommended and saying, you know, I think I'd like to have a podcast. And they said, okay, we're gonna put this thing together for you. Um, and so I've enjoyed, the podcast is actually, We have a series that drops on Tuesdays that's really um, a rebroadcast of our summer series Wednesdays with Dave that we did over the summer, which is all different types of industry related topics from pandemic economics to infrastructure and the like. Um, And then on Thursday, Always Bet on Black um, is just conversations that I get to have with leaders in in the industry. about their journey, about how they think about life. Um, And so my favorite moments, and I think when people listen, they can tell there's always a point in time in a podcast where you can tell that it's just me and whoever it is that I'm interviewing and that we're just talking. Yes. We're just talking about stuff. Um, and, And those are my favorite parts because you know, in this beginning set of series, I'm actually talking to people that I know fairly well. So I started with Chris Womack, um, who I've known for many years. Um, Last week, I talked with a gentleman by the name of Barrett Hatches, and he and I have been friends for 20 years. Um, And so every single person drops a nugget. Um, You know, one of the authors from The Energy Within Us, Talisa Tolliver, talking about, you know, what does it mean to be a Black woman and and this idea of feeling like you're constantly trying to prove yourself in a way that your colleagues don't have to. Um, and so, you know, I think for me, just getting to learn from them and hoping that the people who are listening are learning from them as well, even if they're not learning the same things that I'm learning, um, that we all have these journeys and there's always something that you can glean. Um, from someone 's journey and from someone 's story and and because I love stories and i 'm anybody i meet i 'm trying to get a story out of them. Tell me about something about you. This podcast is just you know an extension of that
0: well, this medium is really wonderful because people do get a chance to almost just listen in on on they 're not intimate conversations but they're really personal conversations as you say and Uh, I have learned so much from many different podcasts these days, and so congratulations on that work. Thank you so much. So let me turn to the moment's, uh, you know, big drum roll, uh, the presidential election. (laughs) And most of the people that I talk with lately tend to lay out three conceivable potential outcomes of this election in Washington. Uh, Number one, the Democrats control the White House and both Houses of Congress. Number two, there's a split outcome. One party controls the White House and the House of Representatives, and the other the Senate. And then three, uh, President Trump has secured a second term. Democrats continue to hold the House, and Republicans continue to hold a slim Senate majority. So when you think about those different possible outcomes, How do you see Abe's work evolving under each of those possible scenarios? And um, how can Abe and other organizations that advocate for underrepresented communities tailor their efforts given those potentially very different outcomes in Washington?
1: Yeah, so I would say I think the the first thing that I would offer is um, it doesn't matter who's in charge. If you're gonna do the work, you do the work with whoever's sitting there. Um, And then you begin to think strategically about how you do that work and where do you have some commonalities and maybe where do you have some things that you completely disagree on and and who those coalitions are that you need or the partners that you need. Um, And so, you know, quite frankly, in the last election, 2016, we had um, a lot of conversation about, you know, um, if Donald Trump wins the election, what does that mean for the organization and, and how do we move forward and who do we work with? Um, and we really made a deliberate decision to say, well, if that's the hand you're dealt, then that's the hand that you play um, and that you don't refuse to work with someone because ideologically we don't agree on everything. I think there's always areas that we can agree. I would like to believe that people are trying to get to the best outcomes, even if the tactics that we utilize may be different. And so in this, if think state status quo, which means that the president wins re-election, um, Republicans retain the Senate um, and Democrats you know, retain the house, then I think as an association, we start to think about if there's an infrastructure bill, how do we ensure that our communities are fairly represented in that? It doesn't mean that we give up I'm um, pushing on environmental issues, because I think we have to continue that. But you got to think strategically about where are those coalitions and how do you frame that messaging so that you bring um, some more folks along and maybe even broaden the group of people that you work with. The same would be true, though, if we have A President Biden, um, and you know, the Democrats control the Senate as well as the House. I think, as an organization, while you know, it certainly would seem to be far more favorable to the policies that we are pushing forward. I'm still incredibly worried about equity. Um, And so, you know, I wanna make sure that top of mind are those who are, I was described, the least of us. And that means that, you know what, some clean energy policy may not work for those communities, or there may be increasing opportunities for those communities, um, but we have other gaps in education and other items that we need to fill. Um, And so, again, you need to figure out, right, who are the right coalitions, understanding where their priorities are, and I think particularly when you work in Washington, it's important to know who the people are um, and not who the newspaper says they are. Because those can be oftentimes very different things. And I yes. think when you get jammed up with what it says in the press or on Facebook or on Twitter or whatever, um, or our own personal kind of ideologies, it makes it very difficult to do the work um, with those who are in positions to help you and are policymakers. And so you do have to kind of bifurcate those things um, and then take a look, a reading of the room, as as you know, Sue, when you work in Washington, who's there, who's not there, who can I influence, and if I can't influence this person, who do I know who can, um, who may have like minded ideals, um, and press forward. And so, you know, for us as an organization, every single scenario we have to plan for, but you know, we have to do the work with whoever's there. Um, and understand where they are and then endeavor to help them understand where we are. Um, you know, I, I feel like President Obama had a really successful administration, but that doesn't mean that every policy um, that that administration supported, we supported. Um, but it did mean that we needed to at least communicate with them if there was a policy that we did not support or partially not support or what have you, The why, why did we feel the way that we did and is there a way for us to get to a place um, or solution that we felt as an organization would be beneficial to those communities that we're trying to support. And just provide the education right because that's the best that as a 501c3 we can do is to really provide an education for what does it mean for. Real people um, and people who just are struggling every day already. We have the energy burden that we have because I would say, in some part, really bad policy making. Um, and so we just got to do better about how we establish policy if we don't want to make the burden any greater. And certainly we have to do better if we're trying to lessen it.
0: Well, I love that principled and practical answer to my question. <laughs> and let me pick up on two things that you mentioned uh, in in that response, and uh, that's economic stimulus and uh, equity. And I'm really going to direct your attention to a post-January world when you will be starting a new job as president of the Alliance to Save Energy. And I've loved that organization for many years. I used to serve on the board, and it's just like a little engine that could in many ways and it's played such an important role in federal congressional policy making on energy efficiency and there's now talk about the possibility of a clean energy economic stimulus package and that there might be appetite for uh, a big play there and I thought It would be useful to hear about your views about how energy efficiency should play in that and and how it links up to the equity agenda in particular.
1: Sure. You know, I think energy efficiency, um, quite frankly, is kind of like the sector that gets left out. Um, And, you know, in my mind, using less is always better. Yes. Than using more of something else. I and mean, it doesn't matter, right? Whether it's fossil or clean. Um, what we want is for people to be able to use less. And so I'm I'm really hopeful um, that with, with any administration, but particularly if we give a new one, that we're able to get people to see that when we start talking about climate if we wanna start talking about moving to renewables, um, if we wanna start talking about removing carbon from fossils, what what have you as it relates to our industry, we absolutely should be asking ourselves, how can we be more efficient first? How do we use what we have better um, and how do we help people use less of it? And then what are the systems that are required or the gaps that make it impossible for people to access What's available to them now, um, and we have a lot of challenges and gaps um, in terms of people being able to access what's available to th- them now. Um, and then I think the other piece is, right, is about n- not only not picking sides, but thinking about who it is that you're trying to help and why you're trying to help them. Yeah. Um, oftentimes. We can all myself included kind of get lost in our own silo about what we believe is the right thing and the why it's the right thing. And, and what I'm hoping with the alliance and, and the partners that the alliance has is that we can step out a little bit um, and maybe get some feedback from some others and understand what their priorities are um, and how do we fit into supporting those priorities. Um, Because I do think that there are lots of win-win scenarios. um, But it just takes a little bit more time sometimes to get to the win-win. But I I think it's possible.
0: Well, and energy efficiency has always struck me as a win-win. You get so much payoff for each dollar spent there. And if the dollars are spent in low-income households in particular, it's just a win-win. Let me ask you now the top of the stack question. This is the question that concludes every one of the Resources Radio's interview. And um, we ask our, interv- our, our guests to tell us what's on the top of your stack. Um, and, and you can think of that figuratively, you know, what, are you, what are you reading right now? Or what are you watching on TV or listening to related to energy or the environment? democratic process or or anything that you find interesting that you'd like to share with the listeners?
1: So I think there are two things at the top of my stack. One is energy related and one is, I think, democratic process. At top of my stack, quite frankly, is not necessarily the outcome of the election, but it's the level of participation in the election. Um, I'm really watching closely and I'm really interested to see how many of us as American citizens show up. This year in this election, Um, I have always um, been really, I think, a little disappointed um, that we don't participate in elections the way that we that we should um, and then we are mad at the outcomes that's just one of those things that I think is a nick in my craw, it just really bugs me. Um, But I think the energy thing that I'm really interested in and I've been doing some reading and research about is this idea about energy justice, um, right? Because it is that intersection between um, energy, the environment, social justice, um, and kind of community collaboration and what does that look like and how can we as industry professionals make that happen. Um, certainly in this post-COVID world, we are all at home, or so many of us. I shouldn't say we are all at home. Many of us are lucky that we get to work from home. Um, but if you can imagine that person who doesn't have access um, to electricity, um, or that person who has already has an energy burden, who's now at home, um, or that person who um, doesn't have access to the internet and has children who are trying to do remote learning, um, you know, I think the the resource that we provide in terms of energy is more important to people day to day now than it ever has been because we are all kind of, you know, home and staying in place in many cases. Um, and therefore, if we think about um, the moratoriums that we've had over on utility shutoffs and we'll probably continue to have through next spring, Um, when you have the regular winter moratorium, I'm, I'm incredibly concerned about, so what happens to those customers who have not been able to pay the bill for the last year? What What's going to happen to them next May? Um, and I know that we have regulators who are thinking about, you know, what are we going to do? And, and companies that are thinking about because, you know, that revenue that they were relying on was going towards capital projects and other things that they had committed to do. And so um, there's an intersection between energy and social justice that I'm increasingly um, been doing a lot of reading and really interested in um, and trying to figure out, quite frankly, um, not only for the association that I lead now, but the association that I will lead next year, um, what role can we play in that larger conversation and how can we lead in that conversation? Um, again, because as I started this interview, I am so much more interested in what is the, the, the impact that we can have um, on communities and certainly those who are suffering the most.
0: Well, Paula, thank you. I am sure that the Abe community is so sad to see you go. Uh, you've been just an amazing leader for them. And thank you. I know that the Alliance to Save Energy is really excited that you're going to be there. And I know that you're going to do great things for that little organization. Thank you. Little engine that could. <laughs> so, congratulations, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, DC. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about RFF at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. In fact, RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Watson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Please join us next week for another episode.